The passage is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, beginning of verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I'll let you into a little secret. I've, um, I've never been invited to preach at George Whitfield College Chapel. <laughs> so perhaps at the end of our time together you might realize why. <laughs> Let's have a look at um, 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, we uh, want to thank you for an opportunity to gather together as your word is opened. Uh, thank you that we can expect you to speak as your word is opened and your Holy Spirit goes to work. We do pray that you will, that we will hear you clearly and respond rightly uh, to the glory of your name. Amen. I'm in Sydney. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard the story of Arthur Stace. Is that his name? Arthur Stace and the Eternity. Um, it's a great story, but it sadly found itself in, I don't know, the 101 Cheesy Sermon Illustrations book or something. Um, um, but it is... I've actually, funny enough, never used it. But it is quite uh, impactful... Um, and is my WhatsApp status, by the way, uh, and has been for a long time, eternity. Uh, and it is eternity in mind as we look at this little paragraph in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, and we've been working through 1 Peter back in our home church. And I've been thinking about this paragraph, uh, which I chose because I was told that I only had 45 minutes to preach. So I thought <laughs> I would pick a short passage. Um, you will know 1 Peter is a letter to Christians who are going through great suffering uh, in Asia Minor. They were being persecuted. It seems as if there was some sort of localized persecution that broke out uh, in the middle of the first century, and they were going through a tremendous time of trial. And this letter is, uh, is written, to, written to encourage them. Um, and uh, as you'll now from the key verse in chapter 5, verse 12, to stand firm in the true grace of God in the midst of a great onslaught uh, of persecution and suffering. And then this little paragraph here uh, in chapter 4 really is written in the context of that. And then the three points I want to leave with you this morning, I want, to, I want you to, first of all, uh, just spend a little bit understanding the context uh, of this paragraph uh, in, in, in its chapter. Um, now, the end-time context of the chapter, as he talks about beginning the, the end of all things is near, is 
a context of suffering, which is very much the big theme of the letter. Right uh, after verse 11, in verse 12, he immediately begins to talk there about the persecution they are going through. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you uh, share in Christ's sufferings or participate in the sufferings of Christ. So he's very conscious that these believers are uh, going through tremendous persecution. And the context of these words in this paragraph um, are persecution and suffering that the church is enduring at this time. It's not the only suffering they're enduring. And I think a lot of people overlook this. But the, the context on the other side of the paragraph is a different type of suffering. And you'll see it there at the beginning in verse 1, where he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is a different type of suffering that Peter is talking about here. Um, and add some of variety to uh, chapter 1, where Peter says you're, you're facing all sorts of trials. But this is one of the trials that they are enduring. They're not just suffering at the hands of their persecutors. There's another, another form of suffering that's also unique to Christians, and that's suffering to be done with sin, suffering to uh, the daily fight against temptation, the daily fight not to give in to temptation um, um, and, and sin. And these are the two sufferings that Peter is talking about, this fight against sin. And it is a form of suffering. And to an extent, every one of us believers should experience these in some way. Um, it's not just North Korean Christians that will experience persecution. You experience levels of persecution socially, uh, even in, in comfortable westernized communities. You know? And that can be everything from being I don't know, unfriended on Facebook to being slapped in the face. And for some millennials, I think being unfriended on Facebook is worse than being slapped in the face. So, so there's, you experience different forms of persecution uh, and different levels of it. But also the other suffering you should experience as a Christian, and that is the suffering to be done with sin, the fight against sin, um, which is hard. And of course, it is, the, it is the fighting against sin that is the hard bit, isn't it? Um, sin is the fun part. I, I'm sure you've noticed that. But the resisting the sin, the fighting against sin, that's the painful part. And Peter includes that as part of the suffering that Christians endure. Uh, and you're not exempt from that suffering, even here at Bible College. I remember we had a, uh, we had a, a Korean lecturer, a guest lecturer for my first year at Bible College. And um, he used to get a little bit frustrated with us, um, us first years, because we were a little bit lax and cocky surprisingly. Um, and every now and again, he would remind us of the motto of his seminary in, in South Korea, which uh, he translated into English for us, but um, it sounded frightening. And it was, study hard to the point of death. <laughs> and, um, which used to scare the life out of us. And he would come in and give us these lectures that we're so lazy. And, um, you know, just sitting around and ducking out of classes and going surfing and stuff. And the motto of my college is, study hard to the point of death. <laughs> and uh, he used to frighten us. And the, the, the strap line underneath was, because if you die studying theology, you will die a martyr. So, <laughs> so yeah. Doc, Dr. Kim really um, had us on our toes. And uh, you needed to get your assignments done in time for him, and it was a lot of work. 
But uh, that's not the suffering we're talking about here um, in 1 Peter. Um, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here. That's, I hope it's not suffering for you. That um, you're not exempt from fighting sin here. Nor should you think you are. Nor should you think that it doesn't happen here. Uh, we lost one of our classmates um, and her boyfriend in our second year because she fell pregnant. We're not exempt from fighting sin here. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't put that fight um, on the sidelines while we're busy studying theology. The context of suffering is the context of the Christian life. That suffering to be done with sin and suffering from sinners who want to be done with you. And in some sense, all of you should face that fight because that is the mark of the Christian life and the mark of living in these end times. And that, secondly, is the comfort here. That's the comfort. We've seen the context. Look at the comfort here. The very words that Peter says there in verse 7, the end of all things that ha- is at hand, is a comfort. It's a great comfort to these believers. Why? Because Peter is telling them that your suffering has an expiry date. Your suffering has an expiry date. The struggle to be done with your sin and the struggle against sinners who want to be done with you has an expiry date. It's not going to last forever. That is a great comfort to these believers. And here we are, 2,000 years closer to that date, how much more of a comfort should it be for us? If we keep our eyes on eternity, we put the suffering and the battles against sin in their proper perspective and are not tempted to be overwhelmed by them when it just feels like this continued battle against sin and sinners is relentless. It's not going to be that way. The end of all things is at hand. That is a comfort for us because suffering will one day end, but glory never will. And that's a great, that's a great thread in Peter's letter to these struggling and suffering believers. So do not miss the comfort of this news that the end is at hand. And it's something, eternity is something that perhaps we hear and talk about, um, but don't live it out. And maybe it is a quaint little chalk drawing, um, but actually the reality of it is our comfort and should be our constant joy. And so lastly, as we look at the passage that was read, Peter talks about your conduct in the light of that eternity. And of course, there he tells you that you must map out the timeline of the apocalypse and work out who the four horsemen really are and put dates to them. Am I right? Oh, I'm sorry, I was supposed to be at the dispensationalist college today. <laughs> Wait, let me give the one you need to hear. It's the one in the Bible. Have you noticed how normal end-time conduct is in the Bible? End-time conduct is normal. It is the normal Christian life and how we should live in the light of the end. And there are the three, there are the three aspects of end-time living here in these verses. The first one is prayer. The first one is prayer. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, what should you do? Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, here as believers, 
going through great anxiety, probably losing homes, families, jobs, facing great persecution and struggles. Peter says, here's something that you should be doing in the light of this. Keep your head. Don't panic. Don't be overwhelmed by the anxiety of the age or the threats of what's coming or all of these things that are changing and how hard it's going to be for us as Christians. You know what you do? You keep your head and you pray. You keep your head and you pray. Now, that may sound very obvious, but I'll tell you this from Bible college memory. The prayer hour was very difficult for me because I always had an assignment that was late. And I'd be sitting there thinking, yeah, you know, Bangladesh is a great place to pray for. But I've got a New Testament assignment that has to be in tomorrow morning, and I think I'd rather be there right now. And that pressure of the immediacy and the anxiety to take care of these things that matter now can make us sideline prayer. Peter says, as a priority for end-time living, you should be praying. You should be praying. And I, t- I tell you, I... I, I I see the struggle getting worse and worse because I can't get anyone to concentrate for more than a YouTube minute anymore. Because uh, the, you know, I can't get people to come and sit at a long prayer meeting. I remember in younger days, we'd pray through the night for certain great crises we were facing. And now it's a struggle to, you know, pray through a minute. Again and again, as I see the difficulties and the struggles and the challenges in our world and the, the threats that are facing us, Um, I see more and more the urgency of God's people to be praying um, in the light of the suffering and the challenges that we face. And then the second uh, aspect of end-time living is love. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Let me scratch a little bit deeper on this one. Mostly because I'm funny enough thinking of that sermon that was preached at the royal wedding, which everyone thought was the gospel but wasn't. And um, this whole idea that love is redemptive, it's love that drives, re- that drives God to redemption, but it's not love itself that's redemptive. But there is an aspect here, and this comes from Proverbs chapter 10, that Christian love is forgiving because God's love for us drived him to secure forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. And there is, there is that aspect there, even with that word cover, which is, um, anybody, anybody? Kalupt <laughs> um, in the Greek, kippur in the, in the Hebrew, yom kippur, the day of atonement, the day when your sins are covered, blessed is his, sins are forgiven, his, his sins are covered, his transgressions are forgiven, Psalm 32. Um, I sometimes have to spend quite a while on this because our world has the idea that um, this kind of forgiveness of love covering your sins, it's a kind of just sweeping the offense under the carpet. So we just, yeah, well, you've done something wrong, but, you know, okay, we'll just sweep it under the carpet. I think it's your fault, by the way, because of this Australian term. Ah, No worries, mate. (laughs) So, so So when you say, you know, you're sort of, you know, when somebody hurts you or something and says sorry and you go, no worries... We kind of, that's kind of taken a sweeping it under the carpet. So you go, you know, the person says, sorry, and you go, no worries, mate. And then you go, pig, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, you're not really actually forgiving. You're just kind of sweeping it under the carpet, but the offense is still there. That's not the picture here, of course, with this word cover. Uh, the Hebrew picture is not there. Uh, 
to have your sins covered means somebody else is taking the offense on your behalf. Um, I used to work as a paramedic, and um, I, I was working in London in a hospital in London when the IRA was still bombing places. Um, and in the operating theater where I worked, uh, they had this bomb blanket, which um, when they found a, a bomb in the building, one of you was supposed to take this bomb blanket and run and put it over the bomb and then run away. It's like any of us was going to do that. Um, <laughs> but I got elected to do it because I was a South African and they reckoned we knew how to handle these kind of things. <laughs> so, um, so you take this bomb blanket, which you come and get it out the box when you saw the bomb, <laughs> and it was this massive lead-lined, heavy blanket. And then you took this blanket and you went and you put it on the bomb and they showed us a video of how it worked. And then once it was over the bomb, this bomb exploded and this blanket would get ripped to shreds and everything, but it would absorb the impact of the blast and other people would be saved. And when I was remembering that, I was thinking, that's this cover in the Bible. It's the covering that you put over someone else's offense and you absorb the penalty of it. See, that's the picture of Christ's covering. That's Yom Kippur. That Christ absorbs the penalty for our offense upon himself. He takes the judgment of it. He takes the damage. And we are forgiven. There's a price to be paid in you forgiving someone else. And that is constant every day as you express love in forgiveness. Um, you know, even here where I know you all love each other very much, there will be times when you will have to forgive one another for something. And Friends cannot long be friends, and Christians cannot long, work to get, cannot long work together unless they forgive one another. And I've seen, particularly in this position where I am now, the destructive effects of unforgiveness. So I travel around, I visit a lot of churches, and I remember going to this one church, and this man was waiting for me um, as I arrived. The bishop finally got there after a number of years. Um, and I knew I was in trouble because as soon as I walked in the door, there he was standing there going, it's about time you showed up. So I knew I was in for an interesting morning, and then after the sermon, he came to speak to me and just let off this tirade um, against the pastor of his church, because he had overheard the pastor say something nasty about him. He said, like, ah, oh, this guy's just a pain in the neck or something, and, um, and I had to listen to this. And I'm listening, and he's offloading all the bile and spewing everything all over me. And um, I eventually said to him, did you go and speak to the pastor about this, this offense that he's done? And he's looking at me like, no, I've been waiting for you. So I'm going like, hmm, how long ago did this happen? 20 years ago? I said, 20 years ago? 20 years ago, you've been holding this unforgiveness against a fellow Christian letting it consume you, and he really did look consumed and bitter and resentful by it. And this pastor doesn't know. The pastor did the wrong thing, but he was never confronted on it. Instead, he, he stewed over this, and it completely ruined his Christian life for 20 years by the looks of it. It's true what they say, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And... Um, and um, it's something to bear in mind as we express Christian love to one another. It's not like a Snapchat I love you thing. It's costly. It means forgiving one another. It means overlooking the little offenses. It means forgiving as Christ has forgiven us, isn't it? I think Luther said it's the most frightening 
line in the Bible, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Lastly, he says there, verse 9 and verse 10, what's the third aspect of end-time living? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality without, to one another without grumbling. Uh, serving one another. Hospitality, philozenos, love for the stranger. That should be a mark of what Christians do. It should be a mark of who Christians are. Love for the stranger expressed in real ways, hospitality. I was listening to the news this morning. I think it was, was it ABC, Dave, or one of the news channels this morning? Today, Australia is going to receive its 52 millionth citizen. And interestingly, the news reader said that that person is most likely to be an immigrant. Today, Australia will receive its 52 millionth person. Can you show philozenos? Can you show love for the stranger? It's been a mark of Australia. It should be a mark of Christians all the more. That we show hospitality without grumbling. Without grumbling, I love that word. It's a, it sounds like a strange Afrikaans word, which I, you won't understand, but it sounds gogusmos. Uh, it sounds Afrikaans for a saying that um, I'll go, but I'm not really wanting to. That's what it sounds like in English, and that's gogusmos. Excel my usi lusi, something like that. Mosi lusi. And um, that's not what Christians should be doing. Uh, it's a willing spirit. It's a it's a welcoming of the stranger and the refugee and the immigrant uh, because we have a God who welcomes strangers and outcasts into his kingdom and into his family. It should be a mark of who we are as believers. As we serve one another, that should be a mark of how we treat the stranger and, and how we treat one another. As each one, verse 10, has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Use your gifts to serve one another. There's, an S, there's, a, there's something here as well about being realistic about the gifts you have. Not everyone is called to preach or gifted to preach, nor is that a great status. And we're all given different gifts, either serving gifts or teaching gifts, as the two categories here, for each other. And it should be a mark of how we behave towards each other when we gather together as God's people, when we, when we live together as God's people, we serve one another. And of course, um, not so that you can look great or get an extra special award for your amazing gifts and abilities in God's kingdom. Uh, in order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.